1: officially hello hello it's marooned on mars with matt and hillary i'm matt i'm hillary and this is the podcast where we're reading through kim stanley robinson's mars trilogy correct in the last episode which is just coming out and this episode will probably come out the day after that one um we just finished red mars we just wrapped it up and now we're starting embarking on green green mars Mars.
0: volume two of the trilogy
1: the second volume um and it's very exciting uh let me add, let me start by saying Hillary, when you first read these books ten years ago or whenever it was yes. fifteen, did you read them all straight through right away? Did you voraciously go through Red Mars and say, "I have to have Green Mars right away"?
0: Uh, yes, I did, and I think actually I can't remember where I bought them. I think I bought them at Myopic Books in Wicker Park. But nice. um, uh, you I were bought all them three there. Together? I bought them all at once and. Um, Yeah. But, you know, some of that is because, like, well, one, I feel like I am somebody who – is it a series of books that I – I just finished uh, the 15th novel in in the Foreigner series by C.J. Cherry. So, Uh you know, I have the capacity to be interested in doing that kind of reading. And the other thing is, like, because my training is as a 19th century British Mm -hmm. literary scholar, reading things that are really long feels very – comfortable to me natural <laughs> natural to you
1: um cool so yeah you bought you got all all of them and then yeah. uh did you then immediately i just this is just jumping ahead but there are other books not in the tri- that are outside the trilogy but in the mm-hmm. universe like An- antarctica and
0: 2312
1: read... or no or like some
0: 2312 came out like a bunch of time some number of years after i had <laughs> oh, finished uh-huh. reading these books right Um, And I did go and read Antarctica. I haven't read The Martians, which are the interlinked short stories, um, which I just really read. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Haven't done that.
1: Bonus episodes. Bonus. When we start charging <laughs> on our Patreon, uh, we'll do right, like exactly. separate episodes on exactly. that. Exactly. Um, what,
0: what about you? Did you read them all? I the read through? them all at
1: once, like last starting in last October and finished them in like January or whatever. Because I got the I got Red Mars from probably the co-op and then the seminary co-op. Uh, down in Hyde Park in Chicago. The greatest independent
0: bookstore on earth. It really is.
1: Um, and then I think I found Green Mars. My copy of Green Mars looks pretty beat up, so I'm assuming I found it either at um, uh, Powell's or at um, mm-hmm. uh, Pilsen Community Books or somewhere. And then Blue Mars I, I got from the co-op as well. So, yeah, I read them all straight through. And um, before we g- jump, a- again, another question. So you just you said you just finished a 15-volume
0: well, I did not read all those in order. You but didn't read I, them in I order. Have been See, over... that's
1: even more bizarre to me. I mean, I could well, f- I've imagine been reading them reading... in order.
0: I didn't read them all like one right after all. Another. One
1: right after another. Right. Okay. What is right. it about? So, and that's a science fiction universe.
0: Yes. Uh, yes, by C.J. Cherry, who is a really amazing SF writer who's been writing for a long time. Um, is
1: yeah. it? A, is it specific? This is a question from outside of literary studies. Um. But is it specific, do you find it specific to sci-fi and fantasy that they have these super long multi-volume novels and universes that get built up? Or uh, is this a common thread in literature in general that science fiction, especially in the latter half of the 20th century, sort of picks up? Because I'm imagining William Faulkner's yach patois mm. <laughs> county
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, um yeah.
1: and i'm imagining you know charles dickens didn't create a universe but it's dickensian i mean right. he has a style <laughs> right 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 um it's not right. like uh it's not like uh, david copperfield there's a crossover episode with you know um one of the other ones right
0: right good <laughs> good really good references crushing it uh, <laughs> he visits
1: uh, the universe of hard times that doesn't happen in right dickens. but right. what do you yeah how do you uh, well
0: there are like um uh, there are sort of like in the kind of uh, era of the, you know, in the Victorian period, there are series. So uh, Anthony Trollope famously wrote a very long series of novels that really puts, you know, the three volumes of uh, Red Mars to shame. Get your uh, ass in gear, Robinson. Uh, which are like, you know, which are interlinked through like um, uh, as a kind of family saga. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess we could like you could think of like remembrance of things past oh, sure. slash in search of lost time by Proust as also um although that 's different because that since that 's a first person narration like it does take place over a substantial amount of time but it 's not really a family saga mm-hmm. um, uh, you know recently uh, something that like a lot of people have read were elena Ferrante's mm-hmm. uh, uh, the uh, Neapolitan is that right, Musicals. yeah, uh, novels, um, which are amazing, oh. and that again is a kind of like you know, it's a way that, like, it's a way an author can produce like a kind of historical scope, mm-hmm. right? You know, rather than like compressing like a big historical scope, and in which you can have like um, uh, generational change, you know, um, uh, it seems like there's a kind of um, it, it, you know, if you think about like if you think about like Proust for an example and I think that probably the Faulkner example works in this way too um it's also a way that like a novelist can like ask the reader to think about historical difference you know um particularly if you have a series of novels in which like you see the parents and then the children for example um and the change is not only that like you're in a new generation of the family but that the world is different in Mm -hmm. certain kinds of significant ways Mm -hmm. um you know so like yeah anyway so i think that that's a kind of like now in um like science fiction and fantasy publishing um yeah it is more common to do a series um i think actually like an ultra long series like those uh cj cherry novels um which are very like tightly like really like uh you know, one ends and the next one begins, like, you know, maybe two days Uh later. Um, Like, that is like a, like, uh, despite, like, the fact that, like, in science fiction and fantasy, like, the universe, the, like, the place in which the novels are set and all of the rules that go along with that place, despite the importance of that, like, it actually is a really hard authorial feat to write a super long series because, obviously, if you want readers to come in, like if you don't want to make it so that everybody has to start with the first book, you have to do a certain amount of exposition in each one. But you also don't want to lose the people who have been faithfully reading every volume of the Foreigner series. Um, and I think that's a really hard kind of authorial task. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you see that less often. Um, but in SFF publishing now, um, it is very common for... Um, uh, books to be uh, for either like a, a a duo or a trilogy, usually the trilogy, and I think this is a publishing thing where yeah. like rather than letting people actually write a more extended novel mm-hmm. um, an idea that often is really a novel length idea mm. gets broken up into three different mm-hmm. volumes yeah. um, and like you know on the one hand, there is a kind of pleasure like if you read you know i mean and in romance publishing, for example, yeah. Series are very long, right? Um, And often, like, uh, my friends who, uh, like, work on and think about, like, romance as a genre told me recently that, um, like, in romance novels, the way a series will work will often be that, like, um, minor characters from one volume then become the major characters in the next volume. And so, like, in serial, in romances that are written in that way, like... There'll be tons of characters mm-hmm. in each volume because, like, essentially, like, you're generating all of the spin offs mm-hmm. and you have to, like, produce some kind of interest around the next, the, mm-hmm. the couple who will be, like, the focal point of the next one. Like
1: Ant-Man and the Wasp.
0: Uh, Like Ant-Man and the Wasp. I, exactly.
1: I'm a guy. You have yeah, to I explain know, exactly. things in comic book terms uh, yeah.
0: for me. <laughs> Uh, no, uh yeah sorry to right interrupt. well like i mean you know i and, and in some ways like that's yeah that's how like the the quote the marvel universe yeah. works right? right exactly um it's how like comic books yeah. traditionally work yeah. right you know although i guess you know like comic well, books i wonder if
1: i wonder if the romance industry is taking a page from the comic book industry or if or if they're just a parallel de, uh developments in a kind of yeah
0: I think it's a parallel yeah, but romance probably. is a much bigger I mean you know despite yeah. the fact that our world of you know movies is dominated yeah. by comics romance is like the biggest Way genre big. yeah. um and and actually I think the biggest publishing category Of all, like by far, by far. Um, And still in like, uh, you know, not just, I mean, you know, not just in like electronic form, but like in book form. I have a, uh, two former students who are also friends who do a podcast on romance novels called Womance. Mm, It sounds uh, great. Which is W-H-O-A exclamation point, Mance, Womance. Womance. Uh, Anyway, they're hilarious and those are really good well um, check out womance yeah you should check out womance I mean and actually I mean romance publishing is really is super interesting and yeah, romance novels sa- are for me weird to read and they're yeah. like not my mm-hmm. thing but also yeah it's we, great to hear people who are engaged with that uh I kind worked of a couple, talk
1: about it I worked a couple of events at the seminary co-op that had multiple romance writers mm. um and like panels of them and they're wildly popular events and then you hear the folks talk about them and it's really fascinating just the kind of way people got into it, into writing it and then um, the kinds of stories that they're telling and uh, the scope of the, yeah, the scope of the industry is really incredible. It's like people came to people driven like a hundred miles to go to that event.
0: Yeah. There's a huge, right. Huge romance fan culture. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, it's particularly interesting because, like science fiction and fantasy right now, um, there's a real interest in romance publishing, I gather, in um, uh, diversity, both diversity of yeah. representation yeah, yeah. and diversity of authors' writing. Um, Uh, which is particularly interesting in romance because, uh, romance is much more generic, like bound to a really particular generic form, right? Mm -hmm. Like romances are all the same length Mm -hmm. or roughly the same length. Like, you know, the same things happen are supposed to happen at the same Mm -hmm. points in the novel. Um, which I think is really interesting. And it's much, it, it's much more bound to th- those kind of specifics than, like, science fiction, yeah. for example. Right. Is Although, I think within some subsets of science fiction, like, you do get these kind of, like, there are formulas Patterns. and that's how people yeah. write them. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Great. Cool. Well, uh, this isn't about romance novels, this podcast. It's about uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy. And specifically, this episode of the podcast is about part one of Green Mars which is called Aereo Formation. So So, very exciting. We're starting a new uh, volume, uh, a new part, and a new character. And one thing that you mentioned about uh, uh, long series of science fiction books, having to reintroduce the characters every time Mm. at the beginning of a new book because you might have a new reader come in in the middle – Something really interesting happens at the beginning of this chapter mm. um, that reintroduces us to the characters that we have grown to know and maybe not necessarily love, but we've spent a whole um, book, you know, uh, pouring through their their psychologies and their actions and their conflicts, right, right, right. and now we get reintroduced to them in a completely defamiliarizing way yes. through a brand new character. Through a
0: brand new character. Um, through the eyes of a child. Yes. To whom they are just like, you know old. They're old. turtle old people. They're turtle people.
1: <laughs> they're so old that they've become turtles, right? Um, the I don't know what the opening before and the chapter is, is told through the the, the character of Nergal who is who is this child who's about I guess he's when it starts, he's five years old, which is like really ten years old. Right. Onwards. Ten or eleven. Ten or eleven. The yeah. um the opening sort of, um, uh oh. Op- I just hit my microphone. Ah! Yeah, the opening I- italicized portion, um, again, it, it, it comes from a voice that we can't really know. It sounds like Hiroko to me.
0: Yeah, I wonder if it's Hiroko. Um,
1: um, although, it, in a certain sense, it's not mystical enough to be Hiroko. No, it's, it's not true. Uh, enigmatic enough no. in a way. It's too specific.
0: Yeah, Um, I agree. I agree. I, I identified this as, as a, um, you know, this is like a multiple voice or like mm, a corporate voice, you know, mm -hmm. this is a sort of, um, I mean, I do, I do think this is the, um, I mean, and, and in some ways it's a voice that's like removed, right? Because, so we know that most, not all, but a bunch of the surviving members of the first 100 are, with Hiroko mm-hmm. hiding mm-hmm. um uh in fact most of the members of the first 100 are all hiding somewhere all over right? dispersed um but this the the opening italicized section um we should really think of what to call this preamble the preamble the
1: um prologue
0: the prologue maybe pro prologue is probably good sure the prologue is probably good um but the that the prologue to this chapter gives us this like big picture picture right it it has a kind of omniscience to it but it also says we and our mm-hmm. so you know yeah. we have a kind of like back and forth there between who are we listening to um uh, and that first paragraph, I think, is, like, worth reading. The point is not to make another Earth, not another Alaska or Tibet, not a Vermont nor a Venice, not even in a- Antarctica. The point is to make something new and strange, something Martian. And mm-hmm. then just the beginning of the next paragraph, mm-hmm. in a sense, our intentions don't mm, even matter. Yeah. Um, so we have, you know, we've ended the last book with revolution, Um, And then the scattering of everybody hiding from, like, you know, massive, like, state corporate repression. Um, And this one begins with this evocation of transformation, again, of newness. The last book has us think about, like, being historically new at the beginning, untethering from Earth. This one, though, is about evolutionary newness, about becoming. Mm
1: -hmm. But it also is about—it continues this dialectic between intention and chance, Mm -hmm. Where, um, you know, the best laid plans, whatever, shikata ganai, we have no choice. Right. Um, that there are some things you can choose and hopefully determine and other things you can't. And even the things that you do get to choose and, and try to determine uh, can throw everything out of whack. The, or can be thrown out of whack, the top of the next page. Of course, all the genetic templates for our new biota are Terran. The, the minds designing them are Terran. But the terrain is Martian, and terrain is a powerful genetic Mm. engineer determining what flourishes and what doesn't, pushing along progressive differentiation, and thus the evolution of new species. And we see this very much in the body of Nergal. and I don't want to jump too far Mm -hmm. ahead, but at one point he's described as uh, a giant bird bird man or something like that, a giant bird-like people with... uh, I forget what else. Um, but they are extreme... Because of the gravity, they're extremely tall, tall. with brittle bones. Right. Um, bone density is a problem. Somebody broke his wrist just playing tennis or something like right. that. Right, right. Um, which... You know, creates new limitations, but also new possibilities. Right. Um, They uh, maybe they can't play tennis anymore, but that doesn't mean they don't invent new games. And one of the big games uh, that they've invented is running.
0: Yeah. Just simply running. Right.
1: Um, And who can run the fastest and the farthest and who can sort of jump the highest. Um, these are all things that uh, differentiate uh, the, the the new generation of Martians from not only from each other but from the Issei and the Nisei, the people who have come to
0: Mars from Earth. Right, right. Um, yeah, I wanted to make one more point about the about the prologue because I, which I think is really important. Like, um, so it seems like in Red Mars, one of the things that we thought a lot about is the transformation of the planet itself. Um, and again, this kind of you know push and pull between um, intentionality and, uninten- and accident in in the transformation of the planet, um, you know the con- the extremely complicated debate about terraforming, which is a debate that does not have just two sides but like multiple sides, um, but here we begin to think not only about the transformation of the planet but the people on it and t- and the introduction or the prologue gives us. I mean, it seems to me like part of what it says is that, like, those aren't two separate things, right? You know, the planet's becoming and the becoming of the the creatures that live on it, in particular the human creatures, are part of the same thing. And we get this kind of – both this idea of evolution but also this kind of, like, dialectic, right? That, like, also as things change, as the environment changes, people's minds change too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So we're – you know, it's like – Part of what we get here is a whole new set of questions about difference, about Mm -hmm. what it is to be different or to be new. And the prologue ends with this is the process of aerial formation. Mm -hmm. So becoming Mars, making Mars, right? right? Um, And then we leap into, like, a section focalized through a child. Yeah. So, like, it's both making Mars and making and the story of the child coming to be an adult, right? right?
1: Well, Mars making Mars and Mars making you.
0: Right, right, Mars exactly. the maker
1: and Mars the maid. Um, and uh, Nergal is a human who has been made on Mars, quite literally made on Mars. Right, um, right. He, they, the, the children um, exist, uh, grow up, and are born in very different ways than regular Earth children are. Right. Um, or they, that these ones have been. Hiroko has made them. Um, at a certain point, Dow says, you know, is angry. Uh, we don't have fathers. And uh, we were uh, decanted. decanted. We weren't born. Right, we were decanted. Right. Right. right? Um, ectogenesis. And just, yeah, ectogenesis. And just this way of creating new human life implies a completely different relationship to, of the children to themselves, to each other, to themselves, and to their quote-unquote right. parents Or elders.
0: Right, right. And in this chapter, we see not only, we only, I mean, we only learn bits and pieces, mostly through what Nergal overhears from Mm -hmm. older people talking. And then a little bit through what we learn about his, like, um, you know, his kind of cognitive and physical abilities, right? We only learn these kind of bits and pieces about, like, what exactly, like, Hiroko planned or didn't plan in the making of this these early generations of martians um but the chapter also leads us through um a set of questions about how not just how like um uh the biological being of humans change but also how culture is changing Mm -hmm. right because the kind of uh beyond the fact that these children are um the uh you know Products of decant, decanting, mm-hmm. as Dow says. Um, they old, And beyond the fact that, like, um, although in some cases they do know who their fathers are and the idea of who your father is becomes a really powerful one. So Jackie is, you know, John, Boone. uh, John Boone's daughter and, you know, like quite enthralled to the idea yep. of being John Boone's daughter. Little as she seems to know about John or maybe even care right. about John Boone. Um, But we also get this whole, because of, like, the kind of weirdness of their generations, right? So Nergal is younger than Jackie, but he's her uncle. Uncle,
1: I think, yeah.
0: Um, One of the things that we get in the chapter is this whole kind of, like, um, uh, seeing the concern on the part of the older people about incest, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Maya is, like, disgusted by the idea that these children or at – at that point i guess like you know they're tweens basically sure she's disgusted by the idea that they might have sex with each other because they're related although for them like relation blood relation and generation seem to be something quite different than they are for us hiroko also encourages them to like think like you're actually going to find like the people you love Mm -hmm. the most uh are Elsewhere? Be others. But she encourages yeah. them not through like a sort of like anti incest, incest taboo argument, but through right. the idea that like you can only, tr- you know, th- the truest love is for the other, for right. someone who will remain other to you, whereas they are all like so closely entwined with yeah. each other. Um, it's interesting
1: to think back to Red Mars. And I like the fact that we now have a whole second volume because it, there's, you know, it's in dialectical, it's in dialogue with red Mars so you can like you've got something to compare it to and in that regard like it's interesting to think back to Maya and John Boone's relationship where when when John Boone decides that they should get married and like be married for a thousand years basically that that would be a true marriage is like (laughs) right uh Falling apart, coming back together again, relearning the other person constantly and being in a constant state of surprise and adaptation.
0: Right, right. Or the, you know, if we think about the, like, um, the Frank-John relationship in which they, you know, like, they're like brothers, right? Um, Even though they're not actually brothers, but they enact these, you know, they enact, like, Cain and Abel, right? Right, I mean, they enact these, like, you know... Um, kind of myths or stories or cliches or received wisdom about Mm -hmm. how brothers treat each other, right? Mm -hmm. About the rivalry Mm -hmm. among sons. Um, And yet they're not genetically related, you know? So, so here we have the kind of like this sort of flip into something, something else, right? Another side of this. And I do think this is one of the, it's one of the parts of this chapter that is like, you know, um, is really deeply estranging. I yeah. mean, not only because, like, we're suddenly concentrating on a generation of people who find who think that, like, the people we care about, the first 100, are weird or, yeah. and old, and like Maya is and like a horrible hook nosed yeah. monster. She's the bad witch. <laughs> but also because, like, the relations among these kids, on the one hand, you know, like, they feel like kids. They feel like 12-year-olds, you know, like experimenting and being close to each other and not understanding what that means and that sort of thing. And on the other hand, like, their actual relations to each other, it's hard to even hold in your head yeah. why it is they're related to each other in the ways that they yeah. are. Right. And, yeah, I mean, like, the sort of, like, Nergal's love for Jackie feels like, you know, it's it's hard to think of that as, like, but this like just makes sense. It makes sense Mm -hmm. to them. It's like perfectly normal to them, Mm -hmm. you know?
1: Well, I mean, one, one of the ways and maybe, uh, so one thing I wanted to bring up is just on that, almost the very first page, it's actually the fifth page. We get the image of these three, core characters from Red Mars, mm. Through the Eyes of Nergal, <laughs> and of course they're Dr. Robot, the Good Witch, and the Bad Witch. Yeah, And it's up to us for the, at least these first few pages to figure out who who he could possibly be meaning uh, when he uh, talks about Dr. Robot. And of course that's Sax. Yeah. It's delightful. He's This is actually what endears me to Sax yeah. quite a bit. Yes. This is like um, Sax becoming
0: book, human. <laughs> yeah,
1: is his interaction with these children. And, uh, and then the Good Witch is Nadia because of she course. likes Them go outside and build, and they learn the joy of tools. Absolutely, and uh, the bad witch is Maya because she yells at them in Russian and
0: wants them to teach math. I mean, part of what's so great about
1: it, like you're getting such a bad education, right? You need
0: if you just if you at least your math should be okay. Uh, The um, I think one of the things that I like about that is that like you do you know who they are immediately. Like on the my experience of reading this chapter is very like. Um, going back to it, I really, really enjoyed it. But the first time I read it, I remember feeling like, Who's oh, I don't want this. I don't want this. I, don't want this. Ah. I want to just like be with these people who I like right. and like find out, you know, and they are obviously rational and this child is not <laughs> rational or something like that. You know, but like at this time reading it, I thought like it's so pleasurable that like you know immediately who those three yeah. people are. And also you know, it takes us back to like and when we were talking last time, we were talking about like you know, do they fit into these kind of like oppositions are oh, they yeah. archetypes Archetypal, all of yeah. those kinds of things yeah. right and you know, and here, like you know, through the eyes of a child, Abs- you're like, yeah okay, they they kind of fit into a set of <laughs> for a child, <laughs>
1: they absolutely do, you know and and I think this this opening uh half of this part does a really amazing job of putting you into the eyes of a, you know, letting you see the world through the eyes of a yeah. child, yeah, and it's a really great, refreshing way to defamiliarize those characters that we're so familiar with and bring us into the world in a completely new way. Whereas early, like in red Mars, we're, we're profoundly defamiliarized to the the planet Mars and to what it's like to be on it and to try to negotiate this new socio-political space uh, among these people that we, we adults, you know um, here we're being, defamiliarized from that original right, position right. that, that we would spent six hundred pages right, getting familiar right. with the last time. Right. So it's a really clever, like writerly thing to do.
0: I agree. And I feel like it performs this really amazing one of the things I think is so interesting about the chapter is um that Nergal both reads as childlike. Yeah. Um and yet also he has this incredible intelligence and he produces this so there's the really beautiful moment when uh coyote is teaching them and i guess he's the other thing who we learn a lot about in this oh, chapter yeah. is coyote uh who turns out to be near dad desmond desmond he insists on being called and then is like don't call me that anymore yeah.
1: who's desmond
0: uh the but uh on page seven this um we have this beautiful moment. I mean, the description of Zygote mm-hmm. of the of this settlement is so lovely and like um evocative as like only something seen through the eyes of a child really could be. It's mm-hmm. prettiness, right? Um uh but they turn off the the they turn off the wave machine, so the lake lies still. Mm-hmm. Um and Nergal has this moment of seeing um simultaneously like uh the white surface of the water reflecting, I guess, the dome, the whiteness of the ice dome, um, and also the green, um, the green of the water, algae, the algae, um, and he sees these as two worlds inhabiting a single space. It's an, ex- yeah, it's an extremely beautiful and like very precise like way of describing something. Um, and then that, for him, becomes this, like, it becomes a kind of, like, organizing image for right. him. You know, it's how he comes to think about uh, Hiroko and Sachs. It's how he comes, and and he sees, really, that this is about, like, seeing two things simultaneously. It's right. not about an opposition, but two things that exist simultaneously. Yeah. So there's a moment later on where he's describing to Michelle, you know, I, the green world and the white. And Michelle's like, oh, you know, yeah. so archetypal, right. you know, and we could, should imagine those two things coming together. We need the alchemist. And maybe right. there's, like, some truth to that. But really, Nergal has seen something uh, that Michelle has not seen, right. which is that those are not two, choos- the green and the white, um, which also in the Sax-Hiroko thing come to stand in for, like, Sax's kind of cold Positions. conception of yeah. science and Heroko's kind of, like, hot conception. Of science. Yeah. Um, but those two things are not separate, but, mm-hmm. but part of one world. So I guess like first of all, I think this is beautiful. It's like so beautifully written. But I love that it both for me it both passes quite well as something a child might see, you know, a, a highly intelligent, mm-hmm. you know, child might see. Um but also he's having a thought that is more complicated yeah. than any of the adults can have.
1: Yeah, the um, yeah, that, that's, that's a really great way of putting it. The kind of insight that you can only come to when you are completely unfamiliar with a set of concepts and come to it fresh from the first time right. versus when as an adult... You're already so, – it's already baked into your consciousness of the world and you can't – it's really difficult to, defam, again, defamiliarize right. yourself from that stuff you already know to see it from a different right, angle. Right, and right, To create a new image, what he's done is create a new image right. of how Mars works and how aerial – what aerial formation is right. and what life is and right. what science is all together, right? Right,
0: and, and, right. And the
1: way that um, – I was going to, on page nine, I was going to uh, read this part that Hiroko says about this seashell. And I was going to try to find it a parallel thing that I think is happens in Red Mars that Sachs says as well, which I think also crystallizes kind of what you're saying, is that what Hiroko says on page nine is not that far away from what Sachs says on the ship on the way out when he basically explains to Anne, you know, this is life. This is science. Things right. are going to change. Right. We're going to change it just by going there. She says, look at the pattern the seashell makes, the dappled whorl curving toward inward to infinity. That's the shape of the universe itself. There's a constant pressure pushing toward pattern, a tendency in matter to evolve into ever more mm-hmm. complex forms. It's a kind of pattern gravity, a holy greening power that we call viriditas. And it is the driving force in the cosmos. Life, you see, like these sand fleas and limpets and krill, although these krill in particular are dead and helping the fleas, like all of us, waving a hand like a dancer. And because we are alive, the universe must be said to be alive. We are its consciousness as well as our own. We rise out of the cosmos and we see its mesh of patterns and it strikes us as beautiful. And that feeling is the most important feeling important thing in all the universe it's culmination like the color of the flower at first bloom on a wet morning it's a holy feeling and our task in this world is to do everything we can to foster it and one way to do that is to spread life everywhere to aid it into existence where it was not before as here on mars this is basically wow. what sack says Yeah, it is. It uh, is. Uh, on the thing is like where we go We bring life and that's our duty and that's our privilege and that's our responsibility to do because we are the consciousness of the universe and where consciousness goes, beauty follows. And for him, beauty is science. Hiroko says the same thing. Essentially, beauty is life for her, but life is science. The point of science is to bring about and to further life. And the point of life is to bring about and further science, to know the world, you know? Right,
0: right. Yeah, I mean, I, I thats i hadn't thought about how it is so similar to that moment from Sachs. Um
1: He's the first one who says, we are the consciousness of right, the universe. Right,
0: And And her, I mean, you know, and in some ways the difference with Hiroko is her... Um, her kind of acknowledgement that this is also spiritual, right, yes. or that she doesn't see like this. She, here, she uses the word holy twice, and she doesn't see that as um, you know. And this is connected to the kind of um, all of the connections in in her uh, to like Shinto, for mm-hmm. example, right? But the. Um, that she doesn't she, for her there 's not the need to separate off there 's not the need to say like science itself can be our religion right mm-hmm. instead she sees a kind of meshing mm-hmm. uh, you know or that the like the holiness or the spirit of something um is sort of like part of this mm-hmm. kind of vision for her um i yeah i was I was just thinking two things about that um, one is I think that this is such an interesting there 's a kind of like this chapter is so much about um, uh, reminding us about something like wonder, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, uh, which is, you know, I, I think an idea that can be kind of an overplayed idea. But but here um, here we get a very, like, genuine sense of the way in which, like, inquiry and attempt to understand the world... Um, can emerge out of and be driven not by the desire to know everything um, but by the sense of like all there that all there is that isn't exactly well, knowable not, right? yeah exactly
1: not not this not the drive to know everything but the drive to be constantly astounded that you don't know or that you right. can't know right that, the the drive to become get back into a state of wonder
0: right and that that is something that like uh, it, you know, that both can be like part of like a method or a process, um, but is also also an excess mm-hmm. of it, you know, mm-hmm. um, which I, I think uh, is really like that's just like that's evoked really well in this in this chapter, right? Both in that sense of like you know childlike yeah. wonder. Um, but also in kind of pushing back on your thought that wonder is something like unsophisticated mm. or naive right here. Like this is this extraordinarily, uh, you know, complicated way of understanding, you know, not just the world, but the universe.
1: Well, it's and, and I mean, if it, it, to flash forward uh, to something Coyote says is that Coyote takes great delight in being both old and young.
0: Yeah. He says,
1: yeah. I was born old and I'll die young. And mm-hmm. he is always searching for the next sort of thrill and a lot of what we see of him is being grumpy and grouchy because he's dealing with a lot of people and like having to break into moholes and stuff like this and he really deals with a lot of the nitty-gritty of how uh, mars and martian communities interact with each other right but for him it's all just sort of pure joy and just constantly trying to find the next exciting moment
0: right um
1: so he's another sort of balancing uh, another way of experiencing mars and understanding human living together uh another uh, he emerges as a new alternative to um hiroko and sax right i wanted to that's jumping at jumping ahead a little bit because i, I did want to uh flag this moment that sax also speaks on page 15 so one of the really delightful things is that the kids get bored with sex or they, they, <laughs> they, they, they screw with him, right? He's kind of like the substitute teacher that you screw with or something or, or just mm-hmm. the kind of the teacher who you can distract easily and, and have a fun yeah, game with. Right, right. So they, they play the why game with him. They, he, he gives them a lesson and then they say why? And then he explains that. And they say why? And he explains that and he says why? And he finally gets down to like physics and then he gets down to that's just the way it came out in the Big Bang.
0: Um you totally good
1: Which you know again I, I'll say it now because I'm going to forget it uh, reminds me uh, back in Red Mars of when Simon saves Anne and Anne says why did you do that and Simon says, because, 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 because right. you can't, there's no reason it's just because right? right. And at the, ultimately at the core of science is this thing that is just because it just became out in the big bang and that's just the way it worked. And, and, and Nurgal stays behind one day and, uh, asks Sachs, why don't you, why don't you like it when you can't say why? The frown returned. After a long silence, Sack said slowly, I try to understand. I pay attention to things you see very closely, as closely as I can, concentrating on the specificity of every moment. And I want to understand why it happens the way it does. I'm curious. And I think that everything happens for a reason. Everything. So we should be able to tease these reasons out. When we can't, well, I don't like it. It vexes me. Sometimes I call it. He glanced at Nergal shyly, and Nergal saw that he had never told this to anyone before. I call it the great unexplainable. <laughs> you know, so he it for him it does uh, against his will uh, boil down to a, uh, a a question of the holy, even though he would never call it that. It's 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 couched in it's not explainable. There's right. a, it's couched in explanation, not in the sense of the holy or. The mysterious, or whatever,
0: right, right, um,
1: right. But it's still there. It's still this uh, remainder, this excess, right? That, that right, you know, you can't ever get to. And
0: that he has this kind of like, I mean, yeah, this is a, you know, this is a chapter where we see sax as more human, partly because it seems like he is able to confide in Nirgal right. because, although Nirgal is actually like has a charisma that sacks... People are really bellowing outside.
1: (laughs) We're going to pause the uh, episode really quickly while the the unexplained people outside uh, get their excess uh, out of the way. The excess sound. Hey, gang. This is Matt. Um, We had to pause the recording uh, because there was a lot of noise outside of Hillary's apartment. And I think what we've done is... lost some kind of chunk of uh recording i'm not sure what was covered in this and it seems to only be about the length of this message that i'm sending to you but uh just let just to let you know that um we're going to pick up in medias reese of hillary explaining something about nergal's uh mind state and um oops uh thanks for listening bye
0: Quality, or at least, you know, for him, like, he has decided in one way or another that, like, human relationships are not his important relationships. And Nirgal seems to feel like human relations are quite important to him. But at the same time, like, he he doesn't quite fit in with his little crew of kids. Um, he is a little bit on the outside. Adults look at him and see him as strange. Um, you know, and some of that is about intelligence, but I, I feel like here it's also... It's also because he 's like he 's not neurotypical, you know, like his mind actually works in different ways, you know, and that i mean and uh, and his body works in, in so different ways there's a few things i mean
1: i don 't know that uh, maybe in the i don 't know if if this is the case in later in this book or in the next book, if we ever get a chapter from Jackie or from Peter or from Dow, but we certainly never get one from them as children, so right he 's definitely in a certain way there are, there are many ways that he 's um, uh, manifestly not typical uh, when you, uh, in comparison to the other fifteen or so children he likes to hang out with the adults right um, he 's in love with jackie, but jackie 's in love with Dow, so to hang out with all all of them together is kind of painful for him, so that right. is why he hangs out with the adults um, he does i will I will agree with you he does seem smarter than uh, many of them, although in specific ways um jackie is pretty smart in the right. way of knowing how to manipulate people
0: right right no it's not that it's not that <laughs> um, they're not smart I right mean, and it's also that they're all obviously well, they're all
1: hyper intelligent right they're
0: obviously rather extraordinary but like you know they you know they do the sort of earth to Nergal, yeah, earth yeah. to Nurgal, right he like he spaces out mm-hmm. like he, right. sta- he stares yeah. at things yeah his capacity for having insight i think um I think that that's marked out as actually not just like, oh, he's so smart, but that like he has a ki- a mind that does yeah. work differently. Yeah. And, I, and I think it's linked to the other thing I think is so incredibly cool in this chapter, which is uh, he has like we we learn that he can tell what temperature yes. it is to, to the degree. To the degree uh when Hiroko says am I running a fever he touches her and says no you're cool and she's like yes my body temperature is always low Mm -hmm. um he can self-regulate his own temperature he can increase his own uh metabolic rate so that he can warm himself up after nearly freezing to death and he has a moment um after he and uh has gotten like uh he gets uh, soaked by a wave at the lake, and of course, because it's very cold, there's a strong danger of hypothermia. Mm-hmm. Jackie pulls him out, and they all run back to the baths, um, and he warms himself up, and he has a moment there of thinking that he could also pass that heat on to Jackie, right? So he has these—I mean, here here we begin to see, like— uh, it's not just that Nergal is, like, a little different or right. quirky, like, that these these children are fundamentally different yeah. than baseline human beings. Just mm-hmm. as the first 100 have become different than baseline human beings since now they think that they can live to age, 1, you know, 1,000. Yeah. Um, but those differences, I mean, I, I, I like how um, both, like... S- You know, at first you can think like, oh, this is a small adaptation that like Hiroko probably Mm -hmm. has built in or tried to build into Nergal." that, you know, if you could regulate, you live in a super, on a super cold planet. So being able to like regulate your temperature is obviously important. But if we think about that as, like, he has a kind of control over his fundamental metabolic rate, over the rate at which his body is doing its own reproduction of itself, this is actually, like, a pretty intense version mm-hmm. of being, like, you know, at the level of your most basic kind of living processes. Mm-hmm. Different, right? Mm-hmm. He's, not, he's, something, he's something else, mm-hmm. you know? And that...
1: Well, that, yeah. And that well, separates him from the people too when they see right. that he has this power that it right. separates it from him from his peers right
0: and from his peers right they're freaked out by right. it too
1: people looked at him on page 22 is how and this section yeah. starts and people i, and I think
0: that him. that's like you know there is here the sense like we you know like with sacks you have that feeling of like this is a person who's had trouble fitting in mm-hmm. um and i think also with nirgal he's a person who doesn't fit in well because he has these different he has these differences right um here these differences seem to be but we here we can think about like you know neurological or metabolic difference or physiological difference uh not as deficit but mm-hmm. as new, as newness mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. as different in this kind of like positive generative opening up way which i think is a pretty like That's an aspect of this chapter that I was just really, like, taken with Mm -hmm. reading it this time, which reminded me, I was also thinking we should say something about how one of the central things in this chapter is that um, Simon dies. Yes, right. Um, And we get, like, from the point of view of a child who has a body very different from ours and who lives in a world where people don't die except by accident. Uh, we get his point of view on death and his thinking like, oh, Simon must be sick because he wants to be sick. Because right. otherwise, how would you get sick? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, God, it's so sad. He, that uh, is such an intense, sad part of this Yes,
1: um, Plants and animals die, but people don't die. Um, and even when he does die, I, I just e- expect like him to come back to life somehow. Yeah, even right. though, you know, again, he's the character who speaks the least. And we never, obviously, never got a chapter from his perspective. But it did feel as if it was setting something up because of Nergal's powers that, well, Simon, he can't actually be dead. right? Um, Nergal is the bone marrow uh, donor. This donor, Uh, right. Simon has a form of uh, untreatable leukemia. um, And uh, they... Find out that you know it's a one in a million shot. Nergal has uh, a match for the uh, for the blood marrow, so he, or the bone marrow. So he he donates his blood marrow, and there's actually two treatments that go on, and he spends quite a bit of time with with Simon, but they don't really talk all that much at all. Um, Simon uh, and and Simon becomes even more um taciturn uh the as the right, disease right uh, like
0: un, even now unable to speak yeah
1: yeah um and it's it, it it is very uh sad there's a moment when uh you know and and, and nadia i think says you know this is a per, or no ursula says he might have lived a thousand years right um
0: when well, and, and ursula and, and the others from acheron are this is where they're they feel frustrated that they don 't have their equipment right because they think that right. if they had their if they had their full lab they would have been, been able to save him, but instead they 've had to resort to this kind of this old world treatment which are the yeah, blood transfusions um, uh, and
1: and yeah and and this is one of the things that sort of one of the many things that precipitates the idea that they need to that the first hundred need to reintegrate with other communities. Um, Right. I mean, first of all, the zygote is kind of falling apart because the atmosphere is heating up so quickly, so they have to evacuate zygote anyway. But there are all these um, other sort of uh, sanctuary cities that are living above ground and uh, in in full view of... um, I don't think they call it Unoma anymore. They call it the transnational authority, the transitional authority. Right. right. Um And so uh, Vlad and Ursula and Sachs very much would like to get go back to Acheron and, and get or, or, or hook back up with their labs and, and really start doing the science that they that they want to do. But the the, the fear of the death um, that Nergal uh, experiences on page thirty two. Um. Uh. He kept feeling the transfusions, seeing every moment of them and imagining that they were that they're imagining that there had been some kind of backwash in the system mm. so that he had been infected with the disease or contaminated by touch alone. Why not? Or just by that last look in Simon's eye so that he had caught the so that he had caught the disease. They could not stop and would die. Stiffen up, go mute, stop and go away. That was death. His heart pounded and a sweat broke through his skin and he cried with the fear of it. There was no avoiding it and it was horrible. Horrible no matter when it happened. Horrible that the cycle itself should work the way it did. That it should go around and around and around while they lived only once and then died forever. Why live at all? It was too strange, too horrible. And so he shivered through the long night, his mind gone cyclonic, with the fear of death Mm. and the car the cycle he's talking about is the carbon cycle because as they bury simon they it's said that he goes back into the carbon cycle Right. right and when they move the entire town of zygote they move everything from zygote including simon's grave because it's carbon and it's too precious to leave behind right it's too precious to leave a grave behind you have to take it with you um Another thing, while I'm while I'm on that subject of moving zygote and creating a new town that they call gamete, mm-hmm. um, they also uproot the bamboo trees that they live in, yeah, which yeah. we haven't discussed yet. But but when so you brought awesome. up the way that the kids are being raised, right? Um, there is no family structure anymore. The yes. nuclear family is gone. They mm. are um, all siblings, but they're all not siblings. They're right. they're, they're It's this panfamilial uh, soup that they all <laughs> that they all bathe Yum. in essentially, like the baths are a major factor in this in this uh, chapter as well, um, but they live in these bamboo apartment buildings, like basically like five story of bamboo buildings that yeah. are grown, not built right I mean right. We, it, it 's never said explicitly, but it 's quite clear because of their ability to genetically engineer new species and newly genetically engineer old ones that these buildings are one big bamboo tree that's hollowed out and sort of narrows as you go to the top so that everybody lives in them. Um, and they have their own rooms, but it's not like you have parents or anything like that right, or anybody right. in charge. And even if you do, there are too many, mm. it seems like, well, maybe not there are not too many kids and there are adults. But as far as what we see, the, the the teachers, there's about five teachers and there's 15 kids and they kind of rotate around. And that seems to be the kind of new neo-tribal family that's been formed.
0: I mean, this chapter has lots of the sort of, um, the elements that go into a utopia, right. Um, you know, which is to say not like a, you know, perfect world, but a way of imagining what would be a different and better way of, of living together. But we both get like, uh, the dissolution of the family structure, um, and the reorganization of social life, um, Uh, the reorganization of generationality, which in at least in um, the, well, actually that happens in a bunch of different utopias, but, but particularly in the relatively few, like kind of uh, utopias written post-World War II, um, that, that is a feature of them. We get this interest in schooling, which Mm -hmm. is always a feature of utopia um, we see the mix between for their learning it's really a mix between like working and school mm-hmm. um We see that everybody works together. Uh, We see that there's not um, a sort of, like, we don't need to ask questions about, like, motivation because the way in which their lives are organized are such that everybody is sort of, like, co-motivated to do things, right? They're deeply, deeply communal. But a a big part of that is these are children who are growing up with a kind of – a freedom that's, like, not imaginable, right? A freedom that goes beyond, like, you know, the, like, visions of radical, like, education of the 60s or 70s, right? You know, that they have a ton of autonomy. They have mm-hmm. their own their own rooms. They have mm-hmm. their own little village. And Hiroko, you know, mom of everybody, yeah. like...
1: Goddess mother of Mars. Much
0: as, like, Coyote, uh, you know, accuses her of setting up this matriarchy, right, and of being obsessed with the idea of herself as, you know, mama you know mama Mm. mars um like she's actually quite hands off Mm -hmm. um and and doesn't even her love to them is not the way that she you know gives them love is not even what we think of as maternal love well
1: and i mean i'll put i'll push a little bit against that Uh, not 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 against it but uh to extend it a little bit more i mean there's this moment where uh, Coyote, so Nergal goes out with Coyote, and they're, they're driving around, and Coyote decides, you, you know, you need to see the world and come with me, kid. And he has an affection for Nergal already that is only amplified by the fact that it turns out that he's his father. Right, right. Right? But at the, it, it's at this moment where we get this, uh, Ner, uh, uh, Coyote lays out this idea that there was patriarchy and there was matriarchy in the, in the ancient world. And Sumeria had patriarchy and Crete had matriarchy. Sumeria had patriarchy and Crete had matriarchy. Right, right, Crete was destroyed by a volcano, and so all we've got now is patriarchy. And so, Herokos one of her program is really to reinstitute matriarchy. And what I mean, so and matri- if matriarchy is just the polar opposite of patriarchy, I don't know if that's how it actually works. But why not? <laughs> um, You know, then then why would love be exclusive in the way that familial love is? You know, like Hiroko's love for the kids is much, as you say, is much different than uh, what we understand a love for of a a mother to a child. Right. Right. Um, But it fits in very well with this communal way of living, which, you know, make no mistake, is still a matriarchy. There's still the archy part there. It's not an anarchy. There's still rule, and Hiroko is is sort of in charge, but she's in charge in her own way that is not uh, that does not necessarily or does not seek to um, uh, you know um, resurrect the the structures of patriarchy.
0: Right. I mean, right? I think there's that moment. I mean, some of this because we're getting it through Coyote, right? So here we learn. That he and Hiroko were lovers. They knew each other when they were, like, in their late teens. Yeah. Um, that the reason, I mean, what would what, what I guess we've only guessed up till now, the reason that he was on the ship in the first place is because Hiroko smuggled him right. in. Um, uh, so, you know, we get this through Coyote's perspective. He does seem to, in some ways, be an anarchist, mm-hmm. right? He is in this chapter going around from place to place in part because he's trying to create a trade system um, mm-hmm. in which like uh, people recognize when they are locally producing something that people in other communities aren't producing and that that can be the kind of like engine of like how goods get distributed and traded. Um, but it does seem like it matters that he tell, he's, he tells this story in Nergal about like, Oh yeah, this is Hiroko's theory, her theory of matriarchy, that this is coming from his from Mm -hmm. his perspective right and at the end of that he gives this extremely extremely bleak um passage and this is like connected to what you were just saying about like how things are different right so on 35 um uh he's just said this thing about about sumer and crete and Mm -hmm. and then nergal says but now we're starting again uh, and and Coyote says, that's right, boy, we're the primitives of an unknown civilization, living in our own little techno-Minoan matriarchy. Ha! I like it fine myself. Seems to me the power that our women have taken on was never that interesting to begin with. Power is one half of the yoke. Don't you remember from that stuff I made you kids read? Yeah. Uh, which is like, uh, you know, a- a classic theories of anarchism, um, among other things. Uh, Master and slave wear the yoke together. Anarchy is the only true freedom. So, well, whatever women do, it seems to go against them if they're men's cows then they work till they drop but if they are queens and goddesses then they only work the harder because they still have to do the cow work and then the paperwork too no way just be thankful you're a man and as free as the sky so he says a lot of things in his kind of like trickster yeah. pose um throughout the chapter that are like clearly meant to be like provocative and like he wants to disturb people and yeah. shake them up um, but this is also like a really i think if you take his analysis if you think he's right here this is like a really depressing moment, right? I mean this is like a diagnosis of, you know, like what um like uh you know like um whatever like liberal feminism uh-huh. produces, right? It produces this situation in which like oh women are just doing both and like yeah. the successful women are the ones who are rich enough to like hire another woman to farm out the like oh, cow yeah. labor too, right? <laughs> um but it but I think actually what we see I think actually what we see here is that, like, yeah, so, um, I mean, matriarchy and patriarchy are probably not really opposites or equivalents. Um, But it is surely the case that those name systems, not only where the distribution of power is linked to biological reproduction, Mm -hmm. right, and linked to a sort of hierarchized version of biological reproduction. And one of the things that's happened in this chapter is biological reproduction is totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, and not everywhere. I mean, we learn that, like, yeah. post revolution, all of these people are being brought to Mars, right? Uh-huh. There are all of these new immigrants oh, to yeah. Mars. We learn that rather than Coyote says, you know, the first hundred, like, they were mostly, like, I mean, you know, they were, like, mostly pretty comfortably off. And when they came to Mars, like, they had different ideas. But the people who are being brought up now are people who are not comfortably off, right? So we're seeing more of that, like, bringing the laborers up to the planet. He's like, they can be bought off easily with fantasy. They can be bought off easily with, like, you know, entertainments. This is one of the first places we get entertainments. Um, But we do see that something different is happening, too, that may mean that, like, neither matriarchy nor patriarchy can be words that make sense Mm -hmm. anymore. Certainly, the way in which, like, life is being reproduced has begun to look substantively different, which is the sort of hope to hold out against that diagnosis he has, which is, like which does in some ways seem to be right for the first 100 mm-hmm. that like Maya, Nadia, even, even Heroku, who has a lot of control over her world, like all of them like have to do everything, Yeah, you know? Um, and it, and that like and and don't we don't see any of them roaming around the planets by the planet by themselves, right. like just visiting whoever they want to visit, right. and like you know right, yeah, um, well, so anyway, yeah.
1: yeah, I mean coyote is doing the work of uh i mean coyote you know it, it's i don't know, maybe it's ideological on his part in in the bad sense of ideology, like I'm as free as the sky, yeah, but he's traveling around in Iraq.
0: Yeah, right under a rock. (laughs) In a
1: giant rock (laughs) traveling underground um, and really trying to sort of implement this economic system that Nadia and Maya, or is it Ursula, whoever, are trying to... vlad and marina are working it out and i'm trying to implement it right. which means i get all the grief right so he has to go and sort of barter with all these people and yeah he gets to know everybody and see all these things and and party and be popular but at the same time he's driving around all by himself in a rock right right for like huge like weeks and weeks and weeks right. at a time right um which is really fascinating and we probably don't have time to talk as much about it as we would like um uh
0: well yeah we we will have to we'll have to come back to that because he's like he's a fascinating he's so
1: fascinating and and wonderful but um on that note on the note of and maybe we should probably start wrapping it up uh we get here in this chapter another fresh eyed perspective on the landscape of mars yeah oh yeah um so coyote takes Nergal out in the in the rock after the death of simon after everybody is starting to look at him funny because he can generate his own heat <laughs> and coyote says you know you got to see the world my boy and he puts him in the the rock the boulder car and off they go and at first um Nergal, who has they have been outside the dome uh before and at first he sees he says oh it you know it's a pretty small planet isn't it and and coyote says oh yeah ha ha, yeah Right, small, sure. And then they stop at like a ledge or something. It's it's nighttime. And girl says, why are we stopped? He's like, just wait a minute. And then the, sunset, the sun rises over this huge thing. I don't know. I mean, and it's this amazing, amazing uh, description um, that um, is, if I can try to find it, uh, I'm not going to be able to find it. If you can find it, you should read it. But um, at one point, it's just about the scale of the size of this place where Nergal has lived for seven Martian years, uh, 13 to 14 Earth years under this five kilometer dome. And this is the only world he's ever known before. And suddenly he is exposed to the entirety of Mars. And it is profoundly, again, defamiliarizing and enticing at one point um when he's been shown a crater he uh he just says i want to run it you know he wants to run around the world he wants to know every single thing every nook and cranny and boulder and speck of dirt on this planet uh because it is just so vast and and inviting and and intimidating
0: we get the great moment when the so first coyote insists that he 's going to take all the kids outside, and it 's well the the fog blanket is still there so they won 't be able to be seen from mm-hmm. above um, and and we have there there 's also a beautiful description of how freaked out they are by seeing uh, the distant horizon for the first time by seeing sunlight yeah you right. know. Mm-hmm. Um, which is an amazing kind of, like, here's a revisiting of, well, this, so, like, they've been on Mars, and yet they can have the experience of being on Mars for the first time. Um, and then I think the part you were talking about is on 37 to 38, um, uh, Bottom of thirty-seven. Oh, right. They drowsed as the sky on the eastern skyline turned a deep, purplely blue. Coyote hummed a little tune to himself, sounding as if he had eaten a tab of Omegandorf, as he often did in the evenings at Zygote, because presumably Zygote is slightly boring. <laughs> well, the for is over
1: and over and over. Uh, yeah, right. Well,
0: and when Hiroko and her her little group are just keeping their days of silence, they I, just I, silently
1: I sit together
0: until one of them says something. Uh, gradually, it became clear that the sky sill was very far away and also very high. Nergal had never seen land so far away, and it seemed to curve around them as well. A black curving wall that lay an immense distance off over a black, rocky plain. Hey, Coyote, he exclaimed, what is this? Ha, Coyote said, sounding deeply satisfied. The sky lightened, and the sun suddenly cracked the upper edge of the distant wall, blasting Nergal's vision for a while. But as the sun rose, the shadows on the huge semicircular cliff gave way in wedges of of light that revealed sharp, ragged embayments scalloping the larger curve of the wall, which was so big that Nergal simply gasped, his nose pressed right against the windshield. It was almost frightening. It was so big. Coyote, what is it?
1: <laughs> uh, we're talking about last time and several times about just the experience of being on a planet. Yeah. And this is a great example of that of uh Intellectually, Nergal is known that he lives on a planet, but you really can't understand that you live on a planet until you see right. the sunrise right. uh, or just this kind of vast scale. Right. Uh, uh, I, re- I moved recently and uh, we now have a back sort of porch-ish area and it's very quiet. Uh, it's like I'm still in Chicago, but it's like a different city because yeah, I moved from yeah. the south side to the north side. And the back porch looks out over other people's backyards with, like, enormous trees and pine trees and all kinds of weird stuff. And there's birds that are just flying around. And it's just my, been my delight the last week to just about 630 just go outside and start drinking beer and just watch these birds, watch the birds. fly around as the sun sets for two hours. And it is so delightful awesome. and pleasing and nice. Um, and and just uh, being aware that it's, every day it's slightly different, not just the tenor of the light, but, like, the way the clouds are and the humidity in the air, the way that my skin is sticking to itself and, like, just that kind of uh, knowingness that, you know, you're existing and, like, you're on a planet yeah, and it's got right. forces and you're right. never going to understand any of it. It's great.
0: Well, I mean, which could, I mean, we could wind up with thinking about how that, that takes us back to when Nergal has that vision of the white world and the green world, he's looking at a lake, which to him is like a natural, it's the natural feature. It's the natural feature of the place he's grown up. But of course it's like very small Mm -hmm. um, and it's not natural or is it natural, right? right? I mean, we, you know, like at this point, like it clearly, like, this is a word that we don't know how to use anymore, but it's certainly human made, right? Um, And he has this, like, glimpse there of something that seems to be, you know, a pretty profound way of of thinking about what it means and why understanding the world requires having two ideas in your head at the same time. Um, But then when he goes outside, when we see him looking at Mars, right, when we see him actually seeing the surface of the planet that he lives on – perception is very different right mm-hmm. i mean and there's fear and and sublimity and um you know certainly beauty but also just like he doesn't even know what he's looking at yeah. right like right, his right. brain can't process it there's a moment it.
1: where he's like i cannot he, he, where he can't actually understand what it is he's seeing scale so vast you can't understand what you see
0: yeah and and that seems to be like first of all that's all about how like being able to produce that sense that you understand what it is to live on a planet like that takes a lot of work <laughs> mm-hmm. that's hard mm-hmm. right um, and and that also you know the person the person who's making the observation who's looking at the thing who's doing the analysis, uh, the person who's following the experiment, the person who whatever right the the interpreter matters mm-hmm. right, and here he is like this native creature of mars right mm-hmm. he's like you know this is where he's born and and he has a, a mars body yeah and not an earth body yeah and yet when he goes and looks on the surface of mars he's alienated from it
1: yeah too yeah so a constant S- struggle to find and locate yourself and, like, and integrate yourself with your new knowledge. Yeah, exactly.
0: And, and certainly some kind of like dialectic where like newness comes up again and it challenges what you thought that you knew and it challenges your like interpretive framework.
1: It's almost an asymptotic accounting of the uh, something something. <laughs> um, but um, it reminded me of something else that I forgot immediately and I won't even bring it up. Okay. Um, but, um, uh, but I think the fact that, you know, just bringing it back to like the idea that, or the the fact that this chapter is told through not only a brand new character, which may frustrate us initially, but a child character, but only through a child's eyes can you get to see people like Saxon and Hiroko and the planet mm-hmm. uh, in a brand new way. And can Saxon and Hiroko reveal themselves? They wouldn't tell that those, they wouldn't say those things right. to anybody else besides a child that they were actively teaching.
0: Right. right. Um, and
1: so it's only that mo- at that moment when you have to actually articulate what you know. I mean, I can, I, you know, you really identify with this as a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, only at the moment that you really are forced to articulate something that you know intellectually, but you've never said or written down that you really learn that you know it
0: yeah or or don't know it or don't know it frequently and that's what that's
1: what happens happens to sex uh, eventually when they, they keep asking him why 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 but um fun moments in teaching anyway um the end of this chapter the uh community of zygote packs up zygote and digs deeper into the ice um at Nergal's suggestion, by the way, uh, it's his suggestion that they, because they're trying to figure out what to do, uh, whether to create a new thing or disperse or whatever. And he says, just go back farther into the ice. So they do that. They create a new, uh, a new sort of, they start creating a new town. But Nergal um, knows that even though when he returned home after being gone from Coyote, he recognized it as home. This was a very, very profound moment for him. I'm home. But uh, he also recognizes that he can't stay, that uh, that he doesn't want to stay, that there is a bigger calling for him. And so he he leaves at the end with Coyote. Right. Um, And it doesn't hurt that Jackie he and he loses his virginity to Jackie. And then immediately Jackie goes and sort of couples up with Dow. um, And this is, you know, uh, profoundly. Disturbing to the 14-year-old Nergal in ways that I can't identify with at all. (laughs) And and that's basically the end of that chapter.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, so, and we have a bunch of, so there are a bunch of things that get set in motion again, like, you know, complicated relations between people who are, by the end of the chapter, effectively not children anymore. right. Um, you know, we know that, like, Jackie's, like, uh, sense of rivalry with Nergal, which seems to be a lot of, a a lot of what drives their relationship from her point of view is rivalry. Yeah,
1: even if it's a matriarchal society and maybe hierarchy isn't Mm -hmm. there, but rivalry certainly
0: still is. Yes, absolutely. And, I mean, and, you know, like, we, we get, I mean, and this becomes important later that she, you know, wants to, um... feel important because she's the daughter of john boone right so she wants that sort of inheritance from the father right um so we get we get a whole bunch of like human relations set into motion at the end um and we also have a new person who is like like coyote going to be wandering the Mm -hmm. surface of mars and trying to figure out how to start making the world again the world that has become unbelievably enough even more complex than it was at the end of red mars right
1: they one thing that um we're definitely gonna looking forward to in the rest of the book is the return of the space elevator this is one of the things that the um oh my
0: god and phyllis is still alive phyllis and
1: even the characters in the book can't believe (laughs) that she's still alive
0: um (laughs) but they
1: but um you know one of the reasons that the sanctuary cities have been allowed to exist for so long is is they is the citizens of zygote posit uh that the space elevator doesn't exist yet. And right. once the space elevator, elevator comes back, um, a, a capital is going to come back. Right. Uh, the old, the old, uh, cap, the old.
0: Right. Or at least the the distribution bit of capital could yeah. get going again. Because it seems like production has been going. Yeah,
1: definitely. Okay. Um, so that's something to look forward to. And in the next uh, chapter, which is called oh, uh, boy. The, ambassador, the Ambassador. Which is one of my favorite chapters because it's one of my favorite people in the in the trilogy this guy named art
0: I I feel like we should not give away for people who haven't started reading it we shouldn't give away where he's from
1: no but art uh I find art like kind of a delightful (laughs) character I really 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 like art and um at least I did when I first read the books I haven't read this second section yeah second this section a second time yet um but uh Another brand-new character, right? Two two brand-new characters to start off this second right. book, which and is a, a really um, gutsy sort of writer move, I yeah, think. Yeah,
0: exactly. And a whole different set of estrangements oh, happen wow. right off the bat. Completely different set, set of estrangements,
1: which are really, really fun. So uh, tune in next week. Follow us on uh, Twitter.
0: Twitter. At,
1: at Marooned Moon, on Mars podcast. Yes. Uh, which I haven't tweeted from that in a couple of weeks. And mm-hmm. I apologize for uh, being so lazy late in getting – these episodes out, but I uh, moved and I don't have internet at my house, and it's very hot.
0: Yes, it is.
1: Um, but uh, the, 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 this one will be out soon. And um, can Twitter
0: us at, Where can they email us? Uh, Marooned on Mars podcast at gmail.com
1: sure. it'll be in the uh episode description if that's 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 the right email address though
0: i think that that's the right email
1: address. uh you the listener can definitely look forward to having guests as soon as uh, certain people email me back or uh give hillary a firm time or yeah. day yep um, we'll figure that out and so you will be treated to voices that are not ours you'll be defamiliarized unfamiliar voices uh-huh. that'll be exciting we'll get confused you should rate and review us on itunes yes, as please. well yes And um, tell all your friends and um, even your enemies. Yeah. Tell the Jackie in your life. (laughs) Um, And we will see you next time. We'll see you
0: next time. Uh, Keep reading Green Mars. By Kim Stanley (laughs) Robinson. Robinson. (laughs) Bye. Bye.